at two in the morning on a freezing cold night in the middle of a heavy snowstorm on February 2nd, 1915, a man placed a large black bag under a key railway bridge linking Canada and the United States. This man was a German agent on a mission to cripple the transportation of key war material to the trenches of the First World War. He unspooled a lengthy fuse, and with his cigar, he lit it. Soon after, an explosion rang out with such force that it shattered the windows on both sides of the border. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard. The podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes. With your host and author, Andrew McLean. Early the next day, reporter Thomas E. O'Leary of St. John's Daily Telegraph newspaper gingerly scurried across the Vanceboro St. Croix Rail Bridge, linking Canada and the United States. Though the bombing the night before had destroyed one steel beam, six bridge ties, and an upright post, the bridge itself still stood. O'Leary reported, The people of the towns on both sides of the border were in a state of tense excitement. Vanceboro was in a state bordering on anxiety. Stories were being told about, yarns were being recalled, and incidents retold which put various complexions on the affair. The reporter went to a makeshift prison in an immigration office, where, much to his surprise, he only found a single police officer, Deputy Sheriff George Ross. Actually... Calling the one lone law enforcement officer guarding the prisoner a police officer might be overstating his qualifications. Deputy Sheriff George Ross was actually a fish and game warden, but that was only during autumn, spring, and winter. During the summers, he was a circus detective. This may explain why he agreed to the reporter's request to be allowed into the suspect's cell, alone, to interview him for a newspaper. As Deputy Sheriff Ross locked the reporter in the cell with the man who had hours before blown up a bridge, he whispered, He could whip a dozen ordinary men. Inside the cell, O'Leary found the bomber pacing back and forth. He described him as 6'2", 190 pounds, clean-shaven and light-complexioned, with closely cropped sandy hair and splendid muscular development, shoulders remarkably wide and square, always held firmly back from his deep chest. He had a military bearing and restless actions. In the outset of the interview, Horn was inclined to be unwilling, but he gradually became less conservative and told about himself. To my many questions, he answered in what might be described as good broken English. He replied that he was 37 years of age and was born in Leipzig, Germany, where he had served 12 years in the army. Later, he went to South America and then to Mexico. There, he conducted a coffee house. When war broke out, he immediately left and went to New York with the intention of returning immediately to the fatherland. 
He was held up for reasons, however, and stayed for three months in a hotel at Staten Island. Horn, from what I saw, takes his position rather placidly, and has little fear of prosecution. He boasted in broken English. Only for the cold weather it would have blown the bridge to pieces. Outside, the blast was strong enough that nearby houses had their windows blown out. In nearby Macadam, the Daily Telegraph reported locals talked of forming a lynch mob. However, perhaps surprisingly, McAdam residents' angry reaction was the exception rather than the rule. Most New Brunswick citizens, and even its typically ornery newspapers, seem to have taken the bridge bombing rather calmly. News reports led not by highlighting the attack, but highlighting the fact that there were no casualties. They noted that while the bridge had indeed been bombed, it was not destroyed and it would shortly be repaired. This attitude, which is likely more nuanced and cautious about jumping to conclusions compared to how we might react to a similar terrorist attack today, reflects New Brunswick's unique attitude at that one very specific time. New Brunswickers were at that point very early into the First World War, and they were much more suspicious of the First World War than most Canadians were. Recruitment numbers in the province were much lower than almost anywhere else in the country. This was likely because the outbreak of the First World War coincided with one of the worst political scandals, and you might say betrayals, in the province's history. A young, handsome, and charming new premier had swept into power in 1912, two years earlier, promising to clean up corruption. At the very moment the war was breaking out, Mere two years after he was elected, that same premier was facing allegations that he had personally accepted $100,000 in bribes, which is $3 million in today's money. Although the allegations were never proven, he was forced to resign after key witnesses fled the country to avoid testifying against him. His resignation happened just as the whole world was going to war and in its wake, a sour anti-government mood was pervading the province. When Attorney General and future Premier John Baxter urged more New Brunswick men to enlist, his calls were received with outright hostility, with New Brunswickers retorting by asking why didn't he join the army himself. Some people even mailed him white chicken feathers, which was a highly insulting accusation of cowardice they were basically calling him chicken, because he wouldn't personally enlist to go to the war himself. This helps explain the fascinating way that Werner Horn, an admitted enemy saboteur who had bombed a New Brunswick bridge, was portrayed as possibly insane rather than as an enemy agent. Meanwhile, inside the cell, the reporter Thomas O'Leary continued to interview Werner Horn. I left New York last Friday and got in Vanceboro on Saturday night and went to the Teague Hotel. At the time of the appointment, I went to the bridge and met a man there. I gave the password and without a word he passed me a suitcase. He left immediately and walked over the bridge to the Canadian side. I returned to the Teague Hotel. 
On Monday, at midnight, I went down to the bridge again with the suitcase. There was a gale blowing and there was sub-zero weather, which furnished many difficulties to me in accomplishing my task. I searched out a certain place near the Canadian side, but it took me a long time to get the suitcase fastened there with rope. I had both ears nipped with the cold and the thumb of my right hand had been frozen. I set a three-minute fuse to the 80 pounds of nitroglycerin and returned to my hotel. Deputy Sheriff Ross arrived at the cell to take Horn back to the Teague Hotel, where the two of them would get something to eat. O'Leary also went to the hotel to interview the owner. The sequence of the story of the blowing up of the bridge is picked up again in an interview which I obtained with Aubrey Teague, the hotel keeper, very soon after I met Horn. According to Horn's own story, he could hardly have reached the hotel when the explosion occurred, and it was at this stage that Teague was awakened from his sleep at 2.05 a.m. I jumped out of bed and rushed through the corridors to go to the bridge for I suspected right off what had happened. On passing the bathroom, I found Horn, the German, trying to thaw out his ears and his thumb. I helped him to get fixed up. Later, I went down to the bridge. It was not long before everyone realized what had happened, for people all over town were out to investigate the terrible explosion. I immediately suspected this German was responsible, because he had come into the hotel only a short time before with his ears and thumb frozen. It wasn't until the next morning that Deputy Sheriff George Ross had actually gone to the Teague Hotel to investigate. Deputy Sheriff Ross went upstairs to Horn's room and knocked on the door. He opened it, but when he saw the official in uniform, he started back and made a dash for his coat which was hanging behind the door. He was shoved back and sat down on the edge of the bed and let his head fall in his hand. He was immediately arrested and taken prisoner, offering no resistance whatever and making no complaint. In searching his clothing, the police found in Horn's possession a map of the bridge and some other papers, the nature of which is not known. They also found an explosive cap and a Harrington and Richardson revolver, with the six chambers filled, which was in a neat leather pouch in the German's pocket. I intended to use it. The first Canadian official who tampered with me, or anyone who interfered with me while I was working on the bridge, would have been shot. The official surprised me at the hotel, or I would have had it in my hand when I answered the door. Back in the outside world, the big question everyone was asking was whether or not Horn was acting alone, or was he a part of a bigger conspiracy led by the German government? This would dictate how seriously the then-neutral Americans would have to respond, and possibly commit them to joining the war on the Allies' side. Canada had already made up its mind. Attorney General John Baxter, remember he was the one who was mailed chicken feathers for not going to war himself if he wanted a war so badly, wanted Horn to be extradited to New Brunswick so he could be properly interrogated. Baxter seemed like he made up his mind already though, telling reporters, In securing the extradition of Horn, it is the intention to prove that this act of his was an act of war. The Americans, though, didn't seem to be in much of a hurry to find out whether or not Werner Horn was part of a conspiracy or not, possibly due to weariness about being drawn into a war. Two days after the bombing, it was still just reporter Thomas O'Leary, Deputy Sheriff Ross, and Werner Horn alone in the immigration office, which was turned into a makeshift police cell. 
O'Leary wrote, No person displayed any interest on behalf of the German. No messages were received from the outside except instructing the deputy sheriff to keep Horn in custody until he received further instruction. Back in the cell, Werner Horn was by now very chatty and was more than willing to explain that there was in fact a grand conspiracy against Canada. Only recently, I received a letter from Germany telling me to proceed to Vansboro to blow up the bridge there. I was told in the letter that I would be met there on a certain time at a certain date by an Irishman. On giving him the password, Lo Tommy, the man would give me a suitcase with explosives in it. O'Leary asked Werner Horn why ever would he want to bomb New Brunswick of all places, and he replied, I really did it for my country. I did not want to kill anyone. We wanted only to stop traffic of British supplies over that bridge. I would have done a better job, but for the cold. I froze my fingers and my face and my ears, and I thought I would freeze to death before I made all of my arrangements. That wasn't quite accurate. The United States was neutral, and war goods were prohibited to cross the border. At the time, Japan was considering joining the Allied side and sending a 100,000-strong army all the way across Canada in trains to go fight on the front lines in France. The bridge was to be blown up to stop this troop transport. As it turns out, none of it was actually necessary because the Japanese army was never actually sent to fight in Europe in the end. Werner Horn was in charge of blowing up just one bridge as part of a wider conspiracy to simultaneously blow up six Canadian bridges all at the same time. At the last minute, the operation was paused due to the snowstorm, but the German mastermind who'd planned out this operation was unable to contact Werner Horn, who went on to blow up his bridge anyways. His failed effort to blow up this bridge caused the mastermind behind all of this to call off the conspiracy to blow up the other five railway bridges, possibly saving many lives. Back in the cell, O'Leary asked Werner Horn, What was the name of the person who sent you the letter from Germany? Werner Horn just shrugged. It was actually Franz von Papen who had sent him the letter, and who had been the mastermind behind the plot to blow up the six Canadian bridges. Franz von Papen was a military attaché with the German embassy in Washington at the time. You might know the name. Decades later, he would go on to become Chancellor of Germany. As Chancellor, he would be the first leader to invite Adolf Hitler's Nazi party to be a part of the German government. He was sure that he could control Hitler. As it turned out, well, you know how that turned out, don't you? Before he departed, Thomas O'Leary passed by Werner Horn's cell unnoticed, and he peered inside at the prisoner. He suddenly hung his head as he sat on a couch and was heard sobbing. Werner Horn was sentenced to serve 18 months in prison in the United States. After he served his sentence, he was extradited to New Brunswick in 1919, after the war was over. He was sentenced to 10 years in Dorchester Penitentiary. 
After two years there, he was found to be suffering the advanced stages of syphilis, which causes brain damage, and he was deemed to be insane. He was released and deported back to Germany. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.